0: Um, So in reading the story that we're going to be looking at um, this week, I was reminded of a story from my own life, and I'll share it with you. The only thing I ask is that you not judge me for it, okay? This is a long time ago. I've matured and grown a lot since uh, this story that I'm about to tell you. But, you know, I remember one time when I was in college, uh, I'm talking with a good friend of mine, and he's kind of recounting a story of something that had happened uh, the night before. And as he's telling the story, it involved him and a couple of other guys that we knew that were good friends of ours. And uh, one friend in particular the night before had just done something kind of stupid and honestly kind of sinful, you know, and he's telling the story to me and he sees the look on my face change as he recounts the behavior of this one guy. And he says, what what are you thinking right now? I'm like, well, I'm just, I was like, man, I'm just so disappointed. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, I, I really thought he was a good guy. And now you're telling me he did this thing last night and my friend looks at me and he says, wait a minute, are you telling me that because he did this one thing, you're assuming that he's not a good guy? And I was like, well, I mean, you know, he did this wrong thing. And my friend immediately starts going, hey, how many times have you done this? How many times have you done this? He starts pointing out the plank in my own eye and starts revealing that what was happening in this moment was I was passing judgment on the character of my friend based on one simple moment in his life. And I don't know if you've ever done that before. I mean, it's what we see in the Pharisees in the story of Jesus over and over again, right? Always looking at the sin of others before they're willing to look at it in themselves. And one of the things that I learned about myself in that moment was that I had this tendency to to pass judgment on somebody's character based on one moment of their life instead of looking at the whole picture of who they are to understand the bigness of their character. And you know, today's story that we're going to read in the book of Acts has the potential to to feel uncomfortable for some of us. And it's gonna bring us face-to-face with an uncomfortable reality about God, and we have to decide how we're going to read this story because I think sometimes what we're tempted to do is we're tempted to treat God the way that I treated my friend when I was in college. Where we want to pass judgment on God's character based on one simple story that we read in the Bible. And we have to ask ourselves, will we be able to read this story without passing judgment on God's character based on this one thing, because you always have this option when you come to a difficult story in the Bible. You have to say, hey, am I, gonna, am I going to determine God's character based on one story, or am I going to read this one story based on what I know to be true of God's character? And what I want to invite us into today as we read this difficult story, I want to encourage us to interpret this story based on what we know to be true about God's character. If you're, if you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible, you're new to this God of the Bible, let me just tell you a, a very quick uh, depiction of the character of God as painted throughout scripture. That God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger, he's rich in love, he's full of mercy and justice, and he is the source of all transforming love. This is the picture of the God of the Bible that we get. And I believe it is crucial that we interpret today's story based on God's character. Now, before we jump in and read Acts 5, I wanna kinda just remind us of where we've been. We've been in the book of Acts for a couple months now, and we've kinda just made this statement of like, hey, if we wanna find our way forward as a church, it's important that we remember who we are. If we wanna know who we are, we need to go back and understand our roots of where we come from. And the book of Acts tells the story of the birth of the church and how the church began to grow into this movement uh, that we still see at work in the world today. And so we've spent several weeks looking at this where we said, hey, the church, as Jesus defines it, it is this movement of God's kingdom that is started by Jesus, fueled by the Spirit, carried by God's people. We've seen the church marked as a a, a group of people with open-handed expectancy about what God can do and what God will do. And then a couple weeks ago, Dave got up and he started looking at, hey, in the middle of, uh, of this story, we see both breakthrough and battle in the middle of the story. And so uh, we've seen breakthrough happen. We've seen the Holy Spirit poured out. We've seen the church established. You know, We've seen revival springing up. There's all this spiritual breakthrough happening in the book of Acts. And yet then in chapter four, what we see is this place of battle begin to come. And what we saw two weeks ago was the battle was from outside of the movement as the religious and political authorities of the day tried to shut it down. And so we're in the middle of kind of this uh, dual reality of a breakthrough and battle where we pick up in Acts chapter five. And so let's read together. I'm gonna start in Acts chapter five, verse one. We're gonna read all the way through verse 16, but we're gonna stop in the middle and I'll tell you why as we go. Let's start verse one. Now, a man named Ananias... Together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal?' What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. In great fear, seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, "'How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? "'Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband "'are at the door, and they will carry you out also.' And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband.' Listen to verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord out of Acts. Happy Mother's Day. You know, it's just a joy-filled text. You know, we're just gonna, it's going to be really wonderful and joyful. Uh, you know, this text is, is kind of hard, right? This story that we read in the middle of the birth of the church, it's just like, ah, what do we do with this? It's like up until this point, it has been all joy and grace and healing and love and mercy. And then we get to this story and it kind of, it's like whiplash, you know, as we read it. And I don't know if you've ever tried to read this story with a non-believer or a new believer. I know many of you are here and you're in one of those camps. You know, you're trying to figure out, what do I do with this God of the Bible? Do I I trust this, do I not? Some of you have just given your life to Jesus. You know, we read a story like this and we're kind of left scratching our heads. I remember uh, when I was planning a church in Canada, there was a a woman in our church who had just given her life to Jesus and then we studied the book of Acts. (laughs) And and she got to chapter five and we read the story and she's like, wait a minute. She's like, is this some kind of bait and switch thing? Like what is going on right here? You know, this, this did not line up with the encounter that she had had with Jesus. In her encounter with Jesus, what drew her to Jesus was the the gospel of love and grace and mercy. And here, there seems to be something different happening. And what really caught her off guard was verse 11, where it says that great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You know, great fear, it didn't just seize those who are not yet believers, it seized the church, It sees those who have given their lives to following Jesus. Now, I believe what follows in the rest of the story in verses 12 through 16, which we will get to in a minute, is directly related to this fear that we see in verse 11. And so we have to pause to try to understand what is going on in this story about the early church. Well, you know, I'll give you kind of a recap of what's happening. So if you'll remember at the end of chapter four, there's this guy named Joseph. And uh, Joseph was such an encourager that the apostles actually renamed him Barnabas, which literally means son of encouragement. Like, man, this guy's such an encourager, he is now son of encouragement. So they called him Barnabas, and he's gonna play a central role in much of the story of Acts. And Barnabas had sold a piece of property, and he brought a 100% of what he'd made from that sale, and he'd put it at the apostles' feet, and he said, hey, use this to bless the church. And that money was used to help the poor and to feed the hungry and to make sure everyone in the church had their needs met. Well, then you get to chapter five and there's this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And you know, the the, the details here are not completely clear about what has happened, but we can ascertain a few things. They have sold a piece of property. They have also brought some money from that cell and placed it at the apostles' feet, only it says they didn't bring all of it. Now, this brings confusion into all of us because we go, wait a minute, you know, that was still probably a pretty generous thing, right? So what's going on? And so what's under the surface here, what we can tell by the way Peter responds and by what Luke tells us is that there's some level of deception or dishonesty that is happening with Ananias and Sapphira. Now, we take this from several places. You know, in verse two, it says that with full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. Peter says the same thing in verse three. He says, you've kept for yourself some of the money. The Greek word that Luke uses there to describe this is the word that could also be used. It could also be said that the funds were misappropriated That Ananias, with the full knowledge of his wife, misappropriated the funds. Now, we don't know if that means that before they sold the land, maybe they told the apostles, hey, we'll sell it and we'll give it all. We don't know if they showed up with the money and said, hey, here, we sold some land, here's all of it. But somewhere along the lines, they had communicated something about what they were giving that wasn't the truth about what they were giving. And so Peter calls it for what it is. He names it deception and lying. He says, hey, how could you be so filled with Satan? How could you lie? You're not lying to man, but you're lying to God. How could you be deceptive? And so there's, there's this deception going on. But there's also a level of duplicity that's going on. Duplicity is simply when you're, so one thing is happening in here and something else is happening out here. Remember Chris talked about this last week where he said so many of us come to church with a filter on our life, And what Chris was describing is when we show up and we we tend to polish over like the fear, the anxiety, the worry we have in our life. And I think what Luke is trying to describe with Ananias and Sapphira is that sometimes we can have a filter on our life that's not covering up our fear and anxiety, but it's covering up our sin. We don't want to acknowledge it. We want to hide it and try to cover it up. And there's this duplicity that's happening where Ananias and Sapphira have been like, wow, look, they renamed Joseph, son of encouragement. That dude got some praise and recognition. What if we try to do the same thing, but we won't actually give all of it? We're gonna say we will, but we'll skim some off the surface and keep it in our own pocket. So there's deception, there's duplicity, maybe there's some greed, you know? But the real question that I think all of us wrestle with when we read this, we can say, okay, I could see where that was dishonest or where that was duplicitous, but why did they have to die? Like, like, why were they killed? You know, was it because they were lying or duplicitous or greedy? But you know, the reality is how many of us have lied? How many of us have been guilty of greed or duplicity? And yet, the grace of God seems to be evident by the fact that all of us are sitting here alive and well this morning. At least I think all of you are alive. Everybody's alive, right? You know, it's like there's, the grace of God is here. And yet all of us have been guilty of these very same sins. You know, some say that the reason they had to die was because So it was early in the life of the church, and God was trying to set up his community, his people, as a holy people, much like he did with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And so he was trying to safeguard against any sin creeping in. But you know, the reality is, we could see her all morning and hypothesize and postulate about why they had to die, why they died. But the truth is, Luke doesn't really tell us. He doesn't really tell us. You know, Luke, was only interested in telling us what happened. He was telling us, he's telling us the history of the early church. And one of the things I commend the guy for is that he could have just left this story out. I mean, notice that would have made it an easier sell. (laughs) It would have made it a little more palatable for all of us to just leave this story out. But Luke is just recording history of what happened. And what Luke is trying to describe, he's saying, hey, listen, the early church was going and there were battles that were beginning to rage. Some of those battles were outside of the community from political leaders, from religious leaders that were coming against the movement. And what he's showing in this this story is that the battle has now broken ranks and is now being fought also in the hearts of God's people. That God has an enemy, that we have an enemy, and he is Satan. And he is at war with our hearts to try to get us to work against the ways of God Almighty. And in the midst of this battle, we see God act and he brings divine judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira. And we don't like it. We we tend to not like it. You know, I think the reason we don't like it is because it, it brings us face to face with an uncomfortable reality, really an uncomfortable sequences of reality. You know, the the sequence goes something like this. You can imagine being in the early church and seeing Ananias and Sapphira fall down dead. And immediately you become aware of one reality that man, God is real. Like he's real, he's alive. But it's not just the uncomfortable reality that God is real, it's the uncomfortable reality that this very real God is watching And he's aware of both our external behaviors as well as our internal motives. And it's not just the uncomfortable reality that God is real and that he's watching and he's aware of our uh, actions and our motives. But maybe the most uncomfortable part is that this God who watches, this God who is real, he can intervene however he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants. And man, we don't like that. You know, the, the psalmist in Psalm 115.3 says it in no uncertain terms. He says this, Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Now, I know that's weighty. You know, truth be told, we don't really, we don't really like this version of God. You know, this kind of God, one who is not accountable to humanity, one who does not have to answer to our standards or our expectations, this kind of God is terrifying to us. A God who has all power, a God who is beyond us in every single way and can do whatever he wishes, tends to bring some fear up in our hearts. And yet this is the God that the Bible holds out to us. He is beyond us. You know, it's interesting, uh, over 300 times in the Bible, over 300 times, we read this, this phrase that oftentimes I'm tempted to skip over because I don't know what to do with it, but the phrase is, the fear of the Lord. I don't know how many of you have read that, you know, you're reading through the Bible and you've read the fear of the Lord, and you're like, wait a minute, I thought uh, perfect love casts out fear, I thought, what is fear of the Lord, what is that? Many times we're tempted to kind of go, well, but that's the God of the Old Testament. You know, as if God like got a makeover when he came into the New Testament or something. You know, like that's the the old school God. Now we have the new school God. But the problem with this idea of an Old Testament God and a New Testament God is Jesus. You know, Jesus makes one of the most radical claims about the fear of the Lord in the entire narrative of the Bible. In Matthew chapter 10, Verse 28, I'm just going to read the words of Jesus. This is what he says. He says, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He says, rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. These are the words of Jesus. Now, I just want to name, there's kind of two options. I know this is uncomfortable, this reality about who God is. And there's kind of two options when we come face to face with this uncomfortable reality about who God is. The first option is that we can deny it and refuse to worship such a God because it it scares us. We think anyone who has that much power and no accountability, well, they must be some kind of tyrant or a monster, and I will not bend a knee to a tyrant or a monster. And that's our perception because that's just the way humanity thinks ever since that fateful day when Adam and Eve chose independence from God. We have been trying to put ourselves on the same level of God or bring him down to our level and hold him accountable to our standards. And whenever we encounter the fact that he does not answer to us, he's not accountable to us, one of our options is just to deny that that's who he is and refuse to worship this God. And when we do this, when we take this route, we either create a lesser God or we create a safer God, one who feels a little more palatable to us. And that's the God that we begin to chase after or... We become our own God, and we become the one who answers only to ourselves. We become the ultimate authority. You know, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers and theologians, I think he speaks into this option of trying to deny God the glory that he has, trying to deny God the authority that he has. This is what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Uh, The Problem of Pain. He says, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him then a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. In other words, what Lewis is saying is like, hey, you can, we can choose to deny the existence of this all-powerful, mighty God. We can choose to say, no, there's no way, you know, he, he has to answer to somebody or no, I'm not. we can refuse to bend a knee and worship to him. But when we do this, We're actually gonna spend our entire life trying to convince ourselves that what is true is actually a lie. Just because we refuse to believe it doesn't mean that it no longer ceases to be true. He says, you might as well try to convince yourself that the sun has no light by staring at the word darkness on a wall and just pretending that the light is not really there. And so one option when we encounter this unbelievably powerful and sometimes terrifying God is to deny it and refuse to worship him. The other option the other option that we encounter is that we can humble ourselves before the Lord. We can recognize him for who he is, and we can worship him. Now, this sounds counterintuitive to us as humans, just because uh, humanity, we, we, are, we are just wired for survival. Like, we want to survive. We want, we want to rise up. We don't want to be pushed down. And this idea of humbling myself is counterintuitive to my flesh, I don't want to humble myself. It feels like if I humble myself, then I'm going to be crushed. I'm going to be pushed aside. I'm going to be lowered. But that's not what the biblical narrative tells us. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, would say it this way in James chapter four. He says, hey, humble yourself before the Lord. And you know what he will do? He will lift you up. The beauty of this God who is almighty, who is all-powerful, who is worthy of all worship, who can do whatever he wishes, is that when we humble ourselves before him, the promise is that not that he will crush us or shove us aside, the promise is that he will lift us up. This week, as I I just wrestled with this idea of the fear of the Lord, I just kept looking through the Bible, trying to figure out, Lord, what is going on? This idea of fear, the church being seized with fear, what is happening, and what I stumbled across is what I've just started calling the unexpected fruit of the fear of the Lord. That when we understand God as God, and we go, man, God, you are holy, you are bigger, you are mightier, you are better, you are smarter, you are wiser, you, you are the almighty, when we understand him, We understand that when we are struck by his bigness, we can't help but fall to our knees in reverence before him and fear of him. But that fear does not crush us. In fact, it's amazing in Psalm 112 verse one, the psalmist said, blessed are those who fear the Lord. You see, there is this paradoxical thing that exists in the fear of the Lord that we find it all throughout the Bible. And so I call it the unexpected fruit of the fear of the Lord. And so I've got a slide that we're going to put up here. You know, I don't have time to turn to every single verse and tell you all the unexpected fruit of the fear of the Lord. But this is some of what I found as I began to look through the word, is that some of the unexpected fruit of the fear of the Lord, over 300 times, as it's mentioned, it is always connected to some type of fruit in our life. And so the first thing we see is that the fear of the Lord is connected with wisdom, That in Proverbs chapter nine, verse 10, it says, hey, the fear of the Lord is the very beginning of wisdom. Do we want wisdom? Yeah, we want the fruit of wisdom. Did we know that it's connected to fearing God? Uh, That The knowledge of God, the knowledge of God is connected with the fear of God. In Proverbs 1, seven, and in Proverbs 2, five, it says, listen, the fear of God is the beginning. It is the knowledge of God that to know God, to understand him in his greatness is to fear him. And then when we fear him, we begin to find true knowledge, that life is connected to the fear of the Lord. I love Proverbs fourteen twenty seven says that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. That when we fear the Lord, there is life that wells up when we understand our position before God Almighty. The fear of the Lord is connected to provision, yeah, it talks about the fear of the, those who fear the Lord have prolonged days. Or it says, those who fear the Lord worry about nothing in times of famine. It says, you know, there is provision from the Lord. And when we fear the Lord, we understand him as the great provider. There is protection in the fear of the Lord. There is hope in the fear of the Lord. There is salvation in the fear of the Lord. It says, those who fear in the Lord understand that he is their salvation and they cling to him. Now the very last fruit up there, you're all going, wait a minute, that makes no sense, <laughs> Did you know that the ultimate fruit of the Lord, the fruit of the fear of the Lord is not being afraid? And we go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you said, fear the Lord, and then you tell me that the fruit of that is not being afraid. We see, this is what we find when we continue reading in Matthew chapter 10 of what Jesus is talking about. In Matthew chapter 10, uh, the verse I read earlier where Jesus says, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, verse 29, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Verse 31, Matthew 10, 31. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's contrasting fear of the things of this world and the fear of God. You know, the things that we tend to fear we, we fear death, we fear betrayal, we fear rejection, we fear being alone or loneliness, we, we fear failure, we, we, we fear scarcity, that I won't have enough money, enough clothes, enough food, I won't, ha- I won't have enough stuff. You know, we fear losing someone we love, we fear irrelevance, that our lives will mean nothing. We fear all of these things that the world brings up against us. And what Jesus is speaking into in Matthew chapter 10, he says, listen, don't fear those things. But you understand that when you fear the only one worthy of fear, then you no longer have to be afraid. This is what the Apostle Paul is referencing in Romans eight when he says, "Hey, listen, if God is for us, then who can be against us?" Then we understand the fear of the Lord. We no longer have to fear everything else. You know many of us are racked by fear. And so this idea of fear of the Lord, it sounds terrifying to us. But what the Bible is trying to tell us is that when you understand who God really is, the only appropriate response is to fall on your knees in awe and reverence. And what does he do with all of his power, with all of his glory, with all of his might? As you fall on your knees before him, he lends down and he lifts you up. It is in the place of understanding the fear of the Lord that the weight of the words of John 3.16 begin to really come to life in us then we understand the fear of the Lord and we hear the words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will live forever. You see, it's in the fear of the Lord that we begin to truly understand the love of God because we see God as this untamable, this unownable, this undomesticated force of power and glory and might, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the builder, the maker of the universe, and what does he do? How does he choose to leverage that power? He chooses to leverage it for you, for me, by sending his son. And this is why the apostle John can write, perfect love casts out fear. Because we fear the Lord and we humble ourselves before him and then we encounter his unbelievable fear and every, his unbelievable love and every other fear we have in the world just falls right off of us. This is the invitation. Jesus says, fear God and don't be afraid. Fear God and don't be afraid. Here's what I love. Over 300 times the fear of the Lord is referenced in the Bible and over 300 times the phrase don't be afraid is used throughout the Bible. That we are to fear God and not be afraid. We are to be God's people who revere him, honor him, fear him, and we are not afraid of anything else because we know the one who has all power is for us. And therefore, who can possibly be against us? This is the good news that Jesus brings to us. And so what do we do with the rest of this story? I believe what unfolds in verses 12 through 16 are directly connected to this fear that seizes the church. Look with me in in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and they laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. You see what? What happens in the story of the church in the book of Acts is we witness the unexpected fruit of the fear of the Lord. Is that as the church is humbled and they are seized with the fear of the Lord, we start seeing this fruit start to bubble up. One of the fruits is that they're no longer afraid. Remember that battle that's out there, the religious authorities, the political authorities trying to shut the movement down? Well, guess where they took the movement of Jesus? Right into the temple court. Solomon's Colonnade was this public place in the middle of Jerusalem and it is there that the early followers of Jesus gathered to proclaim the good news of Jesus's name without fear, but with complete confidence and boldness. How did they get such confidence and boldness? Because they weren't afraid of those who could kill the body but do nothing to the soul and said they feared the one who was only worthy of fearing and he filled them with courage and confidence and boldness as they proclaimed the name of Jesus right in the public square. And what happened as a result, the fruit of life, the sick are healed, the fruit of salvation, more and more people added into the body every single day as they accept the good news of Jesus, as the church allowed themselves to accept the posture of reverence and fear before God Almighty. He lifted them up and he let the unexpected fruit of the fear of the Lord be put on display in front of all those who were there to see it. You know, the question we have to ask is, who are we as a church ethos? Who are we gonna be? You know, we have a city around us that this idea of the fear of the Lord is impalatable. It's hard to swallow, it's hard to digest. And we, as the people of God, just like the early church, we have to decide what will we do, what will we do with this invitation to fear the Lord? Will we humble ourselves Will we acknowledge that he is the great I am, the almighty? Will we let him be king in God or will we try to bring him down to our level? And I believe that if we will humble ourselves before the Lord, he will continue to lift us up. He is unleashing revival in the city of Nashville and he wants our family to play a role in that. And the question we have to ask is, will we let him be God or will we try to bring him down to our level? I want to just beg us, guys, let's be a church who will honor and fear God and let him be the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. Let's let him have all power, all authority. Let's humble ourselves before him and trust that he will be the one to lift us up. And so what what do we do that? What do you do with this? I want to give you just a couple simple things. I'm going to send us to the table of grace where we will take the body and the blood of Jesus and be reminded of how God leveraged his authority, his power on our behalf. But there's something each of us has to wrestle with. There are some of us who are sitting here that, you know, we hear this phrase, the fear of the Lord, and every single ounce of our being like bristles against it. Like, no, no, I'm not going there. Many of us have been resisting this idea of God as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Many of us have resisted this idea that God can do whatever He pleases. And the invitation this morning is is just what James says in James chapter four, will will we humble ourselves before God? And I would say a great place to start this morning, if you know that's you, if you've been resisting the, the almighty character of who God is, if you've been resisting that, then will we start this morning by just praying a simple prayer, Father, forgive me for living in pride and trying to make you lower than me. And then come to the table of grace. And be reminded that Jesus, in all of his power and all of his might, he suffered and bled and died for you. Some of you, though, have lived lives that have been marked by fear of everything in the world. And you've walked through this world just racked with fear and anxiety. Maybe because you grew up in a, a legalistic church that told you to always be perfect, and this image of God as Almighty is just, it just induces fear and anxiety in you. If that's you, then I just want to invite you to hear the words of Jesus. Do not be afraid. Fear God and do not be afraid. He loves you. He loves you immensely. And I would encourage you to do this morning if you found your, yourself in that place of racked by fear, then as you get ready to come to the table of grace, speak that fear out loud for somebody else to hear it. Share it with someone and let them pray for you and ask the Lord to be your strength. Ask Him to be your confidence. Ask Him to be your strong tower and your refuge and see what He does. You know, if you, if you need prayer this morning, if you've been living under the weight of unnecessary fear of the world, we'll have men and women at the Respond Banner. We would love to pray with you and pray for you and love to encourage you in that. But this morning, we have to decide, will we humble ourselves? Will we accept God for who he is? Will we allow his mighty nature free us from the fear of the world so that our city can see that there's a God in heaven who loves them? Let me pray for us, and then I'm gonna send us to communion. And encourage you to spend some time thinking, reflecting, and praying on where you are with God, Lord. Lord, I, I come to you, and I just I I confess, Lord, that I I don't like these stories. I, I don't, you know, I don't. I, I wish I could skip over them. Sometimes I wish, Lord, I, I wish I could control you. And Lord, forgive me, forgive me for wanting to control you, for wanting to hold you accountable, for wanting to make you less than you really are. Father, would you fill our church with your spirit so much that, Lord, we're just aware of your mighty power. Lord, would you bring us to our knees in reverence and awe of how big you are, how far beyond us you are. And yet, Lord, as we fall to our knees, would you remind us that you're the one that lifts us up. You're the one that fills us with courage and with hope. You're the one who has mercy on us. You're the one who has grace for us. You are the, you are the one who has given all so that we may know you. Or as you minister in our midst, as we break the bread, as we take the cup, as we continue worshiping you, Lord, would you give us hearts that are right with you and that are aligned with you? I love you, Lord. We invite you to come and invite you to minister amongst us. In the great, mighty name of Jesus, amen.